Well, we've been making our way through the book of Acts and today we come to chapters 16 and 17 and can I say it would be great if you had your Bible open there at that passage so that we can look at this together and I'm going to pray for us as we do. Father, we want to thank you that you are at work in this world, that you are turning hearts to you that you are showing people the truth about what has happened in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, we want to pray now that you would help us to see clearly what this passage says and that we might be encouraged by the words that we read here. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a society where people think that choice is an important thing. Uh, we like to have choice about who runs our country. We like to have choice about what I watch on TV. Uh, choice about what I eat uh, is one of the big things that we love. Uh, I got onto the Woolies uh, website to just check out uh, some, of the, some of the choices that we had there. When it came to breakfast cereal, did you know that there are more than 120 different breakfast cereals available on the Woolworths website? That doesn't include muesli or oats. When it comes to ice cream, there are, and this is not paddle pops or anything that's got a stick in it, there are, uh, there are 74 different varieties of ice cream available on the Woolworths website. There are 47 uh, different sorts of chocolate biscuits available. Most people love the idea of choice, that I get to choose which one I'm going to have. It's nice to have your personal preferences. And some people think that when it comes to faith and religion, well, it's all just about choice, whichever one works for you, whichever one you're comfortable with. Well, the Apostle Paul's going to burst that bubble for us a little bit later on as we look through this passage. But I want you to pick it up there in chapter 16 with Paul embarking on his second missionary journey. Now, we said that his first missionary journey would have taken about 18 months he travelled a distance of about 2,000 kilometres. This one is going to be even bigger. In fact, double. 4,000 kilometres he will travel and it'll be three years that he's gone on tour with the gospel. He revisits the places that he, that he first preached the gospel uh, and then he moves along to the town of Philippi. We're told about three people he encounters there, three lives that are dramatically changed by the gospel. And you've got to say, this is a really odd collection of people who make up the first church in Philippi. First person we meet is a lady by the name of Lydia. Uh, she's a businesswoman. She uh, deals in fabric, particularly a purple fabric, which was from Thyatira and a very expensive thing uh, in, the, in the, uh, the world at that time. We're told that she already worshipped God, so she had been connected with the Jewish community in Philippi, it would appear, uh, and, that she's, and now she's heard what Paul has said about Jesus. Well, it all just made sense to her. She automatically believed. She knew that Jesus was the promised saviour, and not only does she become a Christian, but she actually plays host to Paul and his companions uh, while they're there in Philippi. And then we move on to the next convert. The next person is someone whose life is transformed pretty dramatically, uh, a demon-possessed slave girl. If you've got your Bible there, 
chapter 16, verse 16. Once, and it, just fun fact, uh, it says once when we, uh, Paul is not writing this, Luke, is, the writer of the gospel, is the one who wrote the book of Acts as well. So he's travelling with them at this particular point in time. He says once when we were going to the place of prayer, uh, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. It's interesting that even this demon-possessed girl can see the truth of what Paul's actually saying. But this is a slightly tricky one to deal with, isn't it? I mean, she's known in town as the demon-possessed girl, and she's continuing to follow them around saying, these men are, are representing the God Most High and telling you how it is to be saved. I'm not sure you'd necessarily want her doing your public relations work for you. I'm not sure that that would have gone down too well in Philippi. But have a look at verse 18. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became troubled that he became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, "In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, come out of her." And at that moment, the spirit left. This must have been an incredible relief for that woman. But her master is less than impressed by what's happened. His source of income has now dried up. So he drags Paul off to the magistrate, but doesn't accuse him of loss of income. Look at what he accuses him of. Verse 20. They brought them before the magistrate and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Where in the world did that come from? I can't even think of what it was that Paul might have done that would have fitted into that category. Apparently it's lawful and acceptable to make a living from a demon-possessed girl, slave girl, but talking about Jesus, well, that seems is, it's a bit of a no-no. So the magistrate's decision was pretty quick. Silas and Paul were beat, beaten and thrown into jail. And this is where we meet the third life changed in this town. Paul and Silas are in jail and they're singing hymns and they're praying when an earthquake hits. The cell doors open. Uh, all the prisoners have the ability to be able to walk out of there if they want to. And the jailer wakes up, saw that the doors were open and just assumed that everybody would disappear. And he's all set to take his own life because he knows he's going to be held to blame for these prisoners. And when the guard saw that the prisoners were there... Well, he only has one question. You'll see it there in verse 29. The jailer called for the lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So there's the beginnings of the new church in Philippi. Three lives changed forever. Three very different people transformed by this message about Jesus. But I think we could probably look at this group this morning and realise that it's a fairly diverse group of people that we've got here. 
I mean, think about who meets here on a Sunday. It's a group of people with really only one thing in common, and that's our trust in Jesus, lives changed by Jesus. We have teachers, engineers, mums, lawyers, doctors, students, retired Chinese, Irish, Americans, Zimbabwean, Australian. We even have New Zealanders here at this church. Can you believe that? But the common denominator is lives transformed by Jesus. In fact, it's the only common denominator. Well, after leaving Philippi, Paul heads down to Thessalonica. Things there start well, but it soon turns sour and they're forced to leave town. And they move on to the town of Berea. And again, the response there to begin with is quite favourable, but some people from Thessalonica come down and cause trouble. And again, they're forced to leave town. Paul heads to Athens, where he's going to wait for Timothy and Silas to catch up. And what Paul saw when he walked around the streets of Athens was this vast array of gods, statues and temples everywhere. Athens had a reputation at that time for the number of shrines and statues that they actually had there, gods from all around the world. Uh, one writer around Paul's time said that it was actually easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a man. There were that many statues of other gods. The people in Athens were proud of this collection, thinking that they had every god known to man covered. My guess is Paul had probably never seen anything like this before. It's clearly the thing that stood out to him. Kind of made me wonder, though, when I was thinking about this, I wonder what would stick out to Paul if he were to walk down Darling Street this morning? What would be the thing that would stand out about Balmain and the people who live here? What would our streets tell him about what we value, what we worship? Well, we're not only told what Paul saw, he saw all of those statues, but we're told how he felt. So chapter 17, verse number 16... While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Paul didn't see the variety of gods as being a good thing. This is not breakfast cereal that we're talking about. This is serious. This is something that actually has eternal consequences. Paul was disturbed by what he saw. A few years ago, I had the chance to visit some friends who were working uh, in a place called Chiang Mai in northern Thailand. And in Chiang Mai, just behind Chiang Mai, there's a, a large mountain and a temple. It's called Doi Sutep. And uh, I remember going there with John, the friend that I was over there visiting. And I've got to say, I kind of had mixed feelings when I went there as well. It was a breathtakingly stunning place, right up on top of this mountain looking out over Chiang Mai. Uh, you have these incredible stairs that you walk up and then when you get to the top, this is what it's like. Gold leaf everywhere, all over all of these buildings. It was spectacular. The buildings were amazing. The view was breathtaking. But it's sad to see people making offerings to a God who isn't there, who can't answer their prayers. 
It's sad to see people who are so sincere and so passionate about what they're doing, but sincerity and passion don't make it true. For Paul, it's not just a question of worshipping other gods. The thing that Paul finds distressing is that they're ignoring the one true God. And I have a feeling that Paul might find that as he walks around Balmain as well. It's not so much that other gods or things are worshipped. It's the fact that Australians tend to ignore the one true God. So Paul started speaking in the synagogues and in the marketplaces. Let me skip through here. And eventually he gets invited to go and speak at the Areopagus. The Areopagus was the venue for the greatest minds in Athens to discuss topics, uh, the latest religious things or philosophical thoughts. People would go up there and the wisest people in Athens would be tossing around these ideas. Well, Paul had been uh, invited to speak there and it was the statues that kind of gave him the topic that he wanted to speak on. See, as he'd been wandering around, there was one statue that actually had the, the plaque on it that said, to an unknown God. So they wanted to make sure that they had every base covered. They had a statue for every God that they knew of. They were pretty sure they might have missed one. So they had the unknown God, the one for whom they didn't have a name. A statue for every known God in the world, and they didn't want to miss out with this one. So Paul decided that that statue would be a logical starting point for his talk, the statue for the God that they may not have heard of. You've got the, the sermon there in verse 22, uh, verse 22 of chapter 17. It really boils down to four things that he wants to say. The first is this, that what's unknown to them, he's ready to make known to them. And we owe our very existence to the God that Paul wants to talk about. The Greeks had this idea that every facet of life had a God that was attached to it. But Paul's talking about the God who rules over the whole world, not just one part of it. The God who rules over everything. And the God who made everything, point number two, he doesn't need us to do anything for him. He doesn't live in temples where he's waiting for food to be brought to him. He's the one who supplies our food. Point number three, God won't accept being ignored. And point number four, the day will come when God will judge this world. And Paul says that he has given proof of this by raising Jesus from the dead. I still think the most remarkable thing about this speech is not so much what he said, though that is pretty impressive, but it's the way that he said it. He was respectful of the people that he's talking to. He was informed. He, uh, he understood the things that they thought and believed. But he didn't shy away from stating the truth. He didn't shy away from saying that they actually had to turn from the way that they're living and acknowledge the one true God. Paul's speech has an almost universal quality to it, doesn't it? 
I mean, what he said to the people in the Areopagus, well, it could just as easily be said to anyone today. The Athenians were God-conscious people. They were aware that the world was there because it had been created by a greater power than them. They knew that there was a God. Their problem was they didn't know which one it was. They tried to have a statue for every single one of them. They tried to cover their bases. Surely if you've got enough shrines and enough temples, then the right God's got to be in there somewhere. But I don't think that we're that different today. Like the Athenians, most Australians would probably acknowledge that there's some force out there, maybe a God. They have this God consciousness in their heads. Most people are looking for some kind of meaning in their life. They're looking for the key that, every, that holds everything together. And like the Athenians, the people in this country will often settle for something less than the real thing. They'll trust a, a whole range of things and yet at the same time ignore the one true God. And I think as people who live lives that are transformed by Jesus, we can learn a couple of valuable lessons from Paul. I mean, I think the first lesson we should learn is how Paul felt when he wandered around the streets of Athens. He, he was distressed, the passage tells us. And I think we need to be a little more, maybe just saddened, that there are so many people who walk around ignoring the God who created them. Neighbours living their life as though there is no God. People we know, maybe even family, trusting things that aren't the one true God who will stand before that God on the last day. So all of this has eternal consequences and that should be at the heart of our concern. But there's a second lesson that we can learn from Paul. We read that Paul was distressed about what he saw and then he did something about it. He talked to the people about Jesus. He didn't get distressed and then go back home to Antioch and whinge and complain about those people in Athens and all the statues that they've got. He was distressed. So he spoke to people in Athens. He talked to them in the marketplace. He talked to them in the synagogue. He talked to them when he was invited to the Areopagus. He spoke respectfully and he spoke to them understanding what it was that they believed. And we need to speak to people as well. Speak to our family members, speak to our neighbours, speak to our workmates, speak to the people who we know who have no place for God in their life. We need to love them enough to tell them about Jesus. We need to care enough to let them know that God wants their life to be transformed by Jesus as well. We live in a society where choice is a significant uh, decision that people will make. We need to make sure that we have a heart for people, that we love people enough, that we want them to hear about what God has done through his son Jesus to give us life and everything else. I'm going to pray for us. Our Father, thank you that stories like this are included in the pages of the Bible. 
stories that we can relate to and understand because it's the same world that we live in. And we want to pray that you would help us to think a little bit more like Paul, that we would see those who have no place for you in their life and that we would be distressed by that, that we would want to see people come to know and to trust and to love you, people whose lives can be transformed by your son Jesus. We pray that you would use us, help us to speak clearly, respectfully, help us to speak to those who have not yet come to that point of trusting in your son Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I think we're going to